Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, step right up, step right up, coming closer, don't be shy. How wonderful to see all your faces here today. But it pains me, it really does, ladies and gentlemen, because on your faces, I see a roadmap of ill health and discomfort, frowns where there should be smiles, and grimaces where there should be beaming grins of gaiety. But fear not, friends, I have come here today with the answers for your ailments, the panacea for your problems, the cure for your calamities, and the medicine for your maladies. I have traveled the world far and wide, from Persia to Peking, from Constantinople to Chozan, from Siam to Ceylon, and in my travels, I have collected only the finest, scientifically proven treatments for your troubles. Now don't go wandering off, because right here today, on this very stage, I will show you things that can only be described as miraculous. I will show you things, my friends, that you might swear are ambrosia from the heaven sent by God himself, and like Jesus Christ, will make you feel reborn. You there, sir. Yes, you with the lame leg and wane complexion. Who, me, sir? Yes, you, my friend. Now be honest, have you ever suffered from rheumatism, neuralgia, sciatica, lame back, lumbago, contracted muscles, toothache, frostbite, sprains, or swelling? Well, sir, I'd be a liar if I said I hadn't. I know, my good man, your anguish is like a tattoo upon your face. That's why you need Clark Stanley Snake Oil Liniment. That's right, as seen at the Chicago World's Fair, it is the strongest and best liniment known for the cure of all pain and lameness. Made from only the finest free-range American rattlesnake, and this bottle can be yours today for the low, low price of two bitch twice. And you, ma'am, yes, you with that lovely dress, I hate to ask you because you look so young, but are you a mother? Why, yes. I am a Mom? Mom! Why, yes, dear, what is it? Mom, do you ever suffer from female weakness? Why, of course, honey. Every woman suffers from female weakness. It's only natural. And that's why I use Dr. Williams' pink pills for pale people. Their patented formula helps me with all my female weakness, including green sickness, nervous fits, loss of vital forces, and hysteria. Here, honey, why don't you take one now? Gee, thanks, Mom. That's right, Dr. Williams' pink pills for pale people. There's nothing better for all your feminine woes. Available at the finest roadside pharmacies. And for the man in your life... Are you feeling weak? Lacking vigor? Then send it once for Whiz-Bang Wonder Tablets. The amazing new discovery with almost magic-like action. Pep and energy come back quick. You feel like a new man, full of red-blooded vim and push. There's nothing like Whiz-Bang! Now with no harmful drugs that form habits. For best results, use with Hoods Sarsaparilla. Yes, folks, get good blood from Hoods. Hoods is the one true blood purifier guaranteed to cure scrofula, dyspepsia, catarrh, that tired feeling, loss of appetite, and more. Yes, Hoods Sarsaparilla. 
now with only 18% alcohol. For the purest blood and the strength of a gorilla, there's nothing finer than Hertz Asperilla. Warning. Do not use product if addicted to opiates. Use of product may cause opium or cocaine addiction and alcoholism. Other common side effects include constipation, diarrhea, dizziness, drowsiness, insomnia, suicidal thoughts, abnormal heart rhythms, internal bleeding, a general feeling of being unwell, anemia, infertility, hair loss, cognitive impairment, vomiting, severe rectal bleeding, and death. Hey there, everybody, and welcome to Quack Medicine, also known as snake oil or patent medicine. (laughs) Is that your slithery snake oil sounds? Yes, it is. As a matter of fact, I was bringing some snake to the table. I was researching all these quack medicines for the podcast, and I wanted to talk about so many of them. But there are way too many to choose from. The The U.S. was basically littered with these things from the early part of the 19th century to the middle part of <laughs> the last century. And there's still plenty of them out there, which we'll get to later. But first, I was wondering if you knew where the quack in quack medicine comes from. Does it involve ducks in some way? It does not involve ducks. Oh. Then I do not know. The quack in the medicine comes from quack solver, which is the archaic Dutch word for a hawker of salve. So it combines two different words, quacken, which means to boast or to brag or to croak, and salve, which is basically an ointment or salve. So it's basically just a guy who talks loudly about his product. Huh. I d- that's fascinating. I didn't know that. Okay. No ducks involved whatsoever. Just No ar- ducks involved whatsoever. Archaic Dutch. Yeah. Just means to talk loudly. Quack medicine has been around for most of human civilization. And there has always been unscrupulous people offering miracle cures and preying off of the uneducated, sick, and the desperate. And unfortunately, they often flourish in times of crisis and uncertainty. People coming around offering up cure-alls and panaceas at a cheap price. When people are desperate and uncertain is when they are looking for answers, and they're going to be more inclined to give something to that snake oil salesman because he'll fix everything you see. Yeah, and unfortunately, sometimes the snake oil salesman happens to be high up on the ladder and in charge of things. Right. It's very unfortunate when that happens. Mm-hmm. Even though most of the products that these people were hawking had no beneficial value at all, some of them actually did have their roots in real remedies. Go on. Snake oil. You know what snake oil is? You put a snake through an olive press and the oil comes out? Uh, Kind of. I don't know exactly how the 
get the oil from the snake. I wonder if there's virgin snake oil, <laughs> first pressed virgin snake oil. I don't think that the snake comes out too well after the oil has been extracted. You can only squeeze the snake once to get the oil. The original snake oil came from China with the transcontinental railroad workers. It was made from Chinese water snake oil, and the laborers would put it on their sore muscles after a hard day's work on the railroad. What they found is that the water snake oil did contain high levels of omega-3 fatty acids. And some studies have shown that omega-3 fatty acids might provide a wide range of health benefits, including the reduction of inflammation. Huh. So that's kind of like with willow bark being an early advent of what we now have as aspirin. Yeah, because it had psilocylic acid in it. Right. What happened was these Chinese laborers would use it and they would share it with their American counterparts. And the term snake oil quickly became synonymous with all sorts of fake medicines that were going around the U.S. at that time. One of the reasons for this was because of the successful marketing of Clark Stanley's snake oil liniment. At the 1893 Chicago World's Fair, Clark Stanley made a big show of cutting up rattlesnakes and boiling them in a big pot, and he was supposedly concocting his oil. However, what they found is that rattlesnakes that we have in the U.S. don't contain the same levels of omega-3s as the original Chinese water snakes, and this makes them useless for this kind of medical purpose. That didn't really matter anyway because his product didn't even contain any rattlesnake oil. When it was finally tested in 1916, the analysis revealed that Stanley's tincture contained mineral oil, beef fat, red pepper, turpentine, and camphor. So at least it would smell pungent. Yeah, it would smell pungent. And it might be somewhat beneficial if you rubbed it, but you definitely didn't want to drink the stuff. No, that doesn't sound particularly tasty. Yeah, it was pretty benign when used topically, but there was plenty of so-called patent medicines making the rounds that weren't. Most of them contained opium or cocaine, which were legal to sell as long as they were labeled correctly, but none of these medicines ever mentioned having opium or cocaine. And they also often had high concentrations of alcohol. Well, that'll make you feel better. Yeah, these medications did have a short-term effect because the ingredients in them, like if you were coughing or not feeling well or had pain, definitely the opium is going to help you because it's a cough suppressant and it's going to take away your pain. And the alcohol is going to get you drunk, and so you're not really caring so much about it. And the cocaine is going to make you have a little bit of burst of energy. So, hey, all of a sudden I'm feeling better. And that's how these guys got away with selling this stuff for so long to the general public. Because of these ingredients in there, you would drink it. You'd have momentary relief of your symptoms. Be like, hey, my cough's gone. I got energy. I got some pep, and I'm feeling kind of relaxed and all right here. But it would soon wear off but that would often lead to chemical dependency. Oops. Yeah. And those were the good ones that people were selling because a lot of the other medicines that were going around at that time had things in them like arsenic, lead, and mercury. Which were all medicines that I did research on and ended up not settling on for this podcast. But yes, those were very common ingredients in medicine. 
they were used for centuries, not just quack medicine, but quote unquote, legitimate medicine. So you were lucky if you just got one of the ones that had the the opium or the cocaine or the alcohol in it that didn't do as much damage as some of those other things that were out there. I didn't know if you knew this or not, but one of the funnier things I came across is most of the soft drinks we have today started out as patent medicines. I was aware of that, yes. And this is why soda fountains originated in pharmacies and drugstores. Did you know that? Yes, I did, but share it with our listeners. For those of you whose name isn't Rain and <laughs> don't know, they were sold primarily in pharmacies and drugstores, and hence that's where the soda fountain came from, uh, why it was such a popular thing in the U.S. to go down to the drugstore and get a soda. They were also something sweet that the druggists could mix some of the other awful medications with the, that they were selling at the same time. They mix them with these sugary sodas, and it would make the medicine go down a little bit easier, not just the spoonful of sugar. Did you know that 7-Up, what its history was? Didn't it start out as a, a form of medicine? Yeah, it was originally named Bib Label Lithiated Lemon Lime Soda. Oh, right. Yeah, lemon lime soda. Okay. Yeah, I, I had heard about this, but uh, go on. It contained lithium, which <laughs> we know is a mood-stabilizing drug. Right. But it was removed back in 1948 and rebranded as 7-Up, I guess, maybe because it did make you feel better if you drank enough of it or you just didn't really care about your problems anymore <laughs> if you drank enough big label lithiated lemon-lime soda. <laughs> doesn't really have the ring. Right. Coca-Cola, which we both know and most people know originally did contain cocaine, was originally marketed as a cure for ailments, including morphine addiction and impotence. Well, if you get enough cocaine in you, you might ignore the fact temporarily that you have a morphine addiction, but I thought that coke dick was a thing. I didn't think that cocaine cured impotence. Some guys get hard on coke. I guess uh, your mileage may vary. Hmm. Okay. And Dr. Pepper... The early advertisements for Dr. Pepper made medicinal claims stating that it aids digestion and restores vim, vigor, and vitality. Wow. Pretty fancy for a soda. I know. But they all pretty much rebranded themselves, took out whatever bad ingredients were in there because they were forced to because new drug laws. And now we have the wonderful sodas that are killing our teeth and bringing diabetes to America. Yum, yum. Overall, what I found when I was researching all these patented quack snake oil medicines, besides them being potentially poisonous, was that they ultimately robbed people of their money, often the people that could least afford to lose their money, to these shysters, and it delayed people from seeking legitimate medical attention for their ailments. Well, yeah, if you're poor and you're desperate and you don't have any other options, a cheap, reasonably priced medicine is all you're going to be able to use, and you're just going to cross your fingers and hope it pans out. Yeah. It's uh, unfortunate these people that 
prey on the uneducated and the ignorant in our society and continue to still do so today. So today, what we're going to look at is quack medicine, past and present. I know you got a couple things, and I'm looking forward to hearing what you got to bring to the table. But first, I want to let everybody know that if they want, they can always call in with questions, comments, ideas, things they want to hear us cover on future podcasts. And we have a new call-in line. The Dirty Talk podcast has its own dedicated call-in line now, and that line is 775-387-2278 or 775-DTPCAST. That is 775-DTPCAST. Give us a call and let us know what's on your mind. All right, I'm ready to hear what you got for us. Have you ever heard of antimony? Uh, is it kind of like alimony? <laughs> no, it's an element. Okay, no, I do not know anything about antimony. It is, in fact, number 51 on the periodic table. Well, I'm sorry, I haven't memorized my periodic table of elements yet. You know what? You have the time. No more excuses. This is Plenty the of time. perfect opportunity to master your periodic table of elements. It is a metallic looking element. And the reason that it factors into this particular podcast is because for most of human history, our medical knowledge was based on the concept of the four humors. Do you know what the four humors are? I do know what the four humors are, but go ahead, lay them on us for those of you who do not know the four humors. Blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile. Supposedly, if there was anything wrong with you, it was because your humors were not in balance. Unfortunately, the ways that we had to balance your humors were rough. Cutting, puking, and purging. Our medical past is just a mess of bodily fluids, and our sick ancestors spent most of their time suffering the effects of laxatives while vomiting and bleeding from various cuts on their bodies. We were always looking for more effective ways to cause the body to eject our unbalanced humors, which is where the puke cup came in. What is a puke cup, you may ask? What, pray tell, is a puke cup. I'm so glad you asked. I mean, I assume that it's a cup you puke in. You are incorrect. Oh. A puke cup is a small half-pint mug cast in antimony that got its start in Rome to help clear the decks, as it were, after overeating so that you could do it all over again. And it became popular again in Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries. Many households had a cup of their own as a reliable part of their medicine cabinet. Wine was kept in one of these mugs or cups for a 24-hour period, and the wine would gain a vomiting or laxative quality. The acid in the wine acted upon the metal cup, and it formed tartarized antimony. If you drink it down, up it comes. Oh. Literally, the metal 
lined in these cups were guaranteed if you drank wine that had been sitting in these cups long enough. They were guaranteed to give you diarrhea and make you throw up. The instructions were typically to fill the cup at night with white wine and take all of the wine the next morning in order to induce vomiting. Fill it with white wine and put a clove or two in it and a little mace. Then let it stand all night and the next morning drink the wine and it will taste of nothing but wine and will work safely first by a vomit and then by stools also. And accordingly as you would have it work, either gently or strong, you may put your wine in sooner or later at night. A child was instructed to take just half that amount. If it had not induced vomiting within a couple of hours, then they were to take the other half of the liquid. This method of using wine to gather a small portion of the metallic part of antimony was dependent on the acidity of the wine, which is why I am gathering the instructions or saying to use white wine and not red. If the wine was too acidic, then the concoction would become too strong for the body, resulting in poisoning and even death. Some cups seemed more prone to kill their patients than others, depending on how it had been manufactured. One cup purchased in London's Gunpowder Alley in 1637 for 50 shillings ended up killing three different people. Despite these risks, the puking cup was top of the line in terms of medical care, and people used it enthusiastically. The occasional horrible death for antimony poisoning was worth it, for the sweet, reliable vomiting from both ends it could ensue. The resurrection of the cup may have occurred because of the prohibition of antimony in 1566 by an act of Parliament. Basically, antimony was poison, and Parliament is like, okay, we're going to pass a law and we're pro prohibiting it. And as a workaround, metal tin cups were made with antimony as one of the ingredients. The resulting alcoholic drink would be used by sick people as a way to purge their body. To have the Renaissance version of Dr. Oz advocate for antimony was also a factor. 16th century celebrity physician Paracelsus believed that in addition to the four humors, a mineral-based medical philosophy was helpful as well. Earthly substances like antimony or mercury were the perfect elements. Antimony purifies itself, and at the same time, everything else that is impure. With not a lot of other options, something that had a visible effectiveness rate and you could keep reusing year after year, had a certain undeniable appeal, poisoning risk or not. The family antimony cup gathered increased powers of suggestion with years of being handed down from generation to generation. If there is a magical special cup in your family that is handed down through the generations that guarantees purging when you use it, at a certain point it's going to have an almost holy relic efficiency. Behold... To my dearest son, I bequeath my puking and laxative cup. May it serve you 
Well... There were also everlasting pills made of antimony that had the same effect. After they did what they were supposed to do... Oh, I think that I know where this is going. You could fish them out. Oh, Rinse okay. them. Yeah, yeah. And return them to the medicine cabinet. <clears throat> One pill could treat an entire family and be passed down as needed. <laughs> Generations. This pill belonged to your grandfather, champ. And now it shall be yours. Use it in good health. Thanks, Dad, but what I really wanted was the good silver and the extra bed. There is no doubt that people loved their puking cups. There is an antimonial cup at the Geological Museum in London that has an inscription on the lid that reads... You are a wonder of nature, and for all people, a certain cure. There is another cup in the National Maritime Museum in London that was believed to have belonged to Captain James Cook. While medicine has since moved on past the puke cup to other, more effective treatments, we will always have the memories, but not the smells. And thank God for that. They could honestly say, this pill has been in our family. Yes. For generations. Hi-oh! <laughs> in. It, it has been yes. in the family. Literally. <laughs> uh, thanks for sharing that. I, you know, when we started doing quack medicine and I stumbled across the everlasting pill and the puke cup, I had to, I had to do a piece on it. I can see why. I I greatly appreciate you sharing that with us today. Previously on Dirty Talk After, After hours. hours. Yeah, you ready for this final volley? I'm ready. All right, let's, let's do, do it. All right, hunker down. Oh shit, it looks like they're regrouping. Ah! What are they doing over there? Oh crap! Ah! Incoming! Nothing's touching. Nothing's touching. Freaking out, man. All right, let us out. 
them. Peace out. Ah, that is out of here. Turn a little bit more and take another half step back. Half step. No. Say hi to Moriarty for me. Dirty Talk After Hours. Available exclusively on Patreon every Monday morning. If you do want to get access to the Dirty Talk After Hours podcast, you can get it in one of two ways. You can follow Rain DeGray on Patreon at patreon.com backslash rain de gray you have to type it out exactly i'm not searchable because i'm naughty she has been blacklisted she's in the adult ghetto i'm a bad bad girl or you can head on over to our brand spanking new shiny dirty talk podcast patreon which is patreon.com backslash dirty talk podcast either way if you pledge at five dollars a month you will get exclusive weekly access to the Dirty Talk After Hours podcast. Have you heard of the golfing playboy and the radioactive water? No, but if you hum a few lines, I'll try and follow along. Um, yeah, you might not want to follow along too closely with this one because it ends in horrific, painful death. Okay, yeah, I'm out. The thrill of discovering something new can be quite a rush indeed. It is natural to try and think of all the positive ways in which a new discovery can be beneficial. After all, the idea that something you recently discovered could be harmful or dangerous is one that people try to avoid. Nobody wants to put in a lot of hard work and then be unable to use the end product. It was thinking like this that caused many deaths early in the adoption of electricity. Electricity was such a thrilling concept, that people fell all over themselves to find as many ways as possible in which to use it, including the electric tablecloth that you could screw a lighting system down the center, but mostly succeeded in giving yourself electric shocks. The same held true with radiation. When we first discovered it, we were certain it had to be a magical elixir, a potent potion that could fix all the things. Everything that we could possibly think to attach radiation to, we did, including making radioactive jock straps that men could keep pressed up against the family jewels in order to make them more potent. Never mind that you were baking your testicles like a potato and dramatically increasing your odds of sterility, not virility. It was new, it was radioactive. Forget about blue balls. How about black balls? It had to be good for you. Your little swimmers would come equipped with six-packs and bulging biceps. We took our fascination with radiation so far, it was actually packaged into radioactive water that you could consume like a health tonic. There's nothing that will put a pep in your step like a good serving of radioactive water. Radiothor was a patent medicine and an energy drink, and it was distilled water containing two radioactive substances. 
The manufacturer claimed Radiothor, in addition to being an excellent energy tonic, cured a variety of illnesses including anorexia, hysteria, insomnia, as well as stimulating the endocrine system. Our story starts when Radiothor met Ebenezer Byers. Ebenezer Byers, known as Eben Byers, was a wealthy American socialite, athlete, and industrialist, and the son of industrialist Alexander Byers. He was educated at Yale College, and I'm mentioning Yale College because it's actually important to how he died, where he earned a reputation as both an athlete and a very successful ladies' man. He took the athleticism so seriously that in 1906, he won the U.S. Amateur in Golf. In 1927, Breyers injured his arm falling from a railway sleeping berth on a party train following a Yale-Harvard game. They used to have party trains as opposed to party buses. And I, I suspect there may have been some alcohol involved as to why he fell out of the sleeping berth. You suspect strongly, I assume. <laughs> I do. Uh, at any rate, unfortunately for poor Byers, his injury was severe enough that it wasn't healing, and eventually he turned to his doctor for relief. The doctor suggested that he take Radithor, which was manufactured by one William J.A. Bailey. Bailey was a Harvard University dropout who falsely claimed to be a doctor of medicine and had become rich from the sale of Radiothor. He offered physicians a 1-6 kickback on each dose prescribed. We will never know if that is what prompted Breyer's doctor to make the recommendation or not. I think pharmaceutical companies are doing the same thing today. To this day, that is correct. I don't know if you can actually give doctors cash kickbacks. I think these days it's more like golf trips and business trips and yeah, yeah. There's there's ways around it. There are yes, the the kickbacks are still happening. What we do know is that Briars became an enthusiastic and outspoken proponent of the miracle water. He began taking several doses per day, believing that it gave him a toned up feeling but stopped in October 1930 after taking roughly 1,400 doses when that effect faded. The irony is that he took far more than the average person would have ever been able to. His wealth provided him with the means to take Radiothor multiple times a day, every day. He was literally rich enough to purchase his own death. By the time he realized that something was amiss, it was too late. He lost weight and had headaches, and his teeth began to fall out of his skull. In 1931, the Federal Trade Commission asked him to testify about his experience, but he was too sick to travel, so the commission sent a lawyer named Wynne to take his statement at his house. The lawyer reported back that only... Two chipmunk teeth protruded from a bone fragment below his nose. His entire lower jaw and chin were gone, Hmm. rotted away from radiation poisoning. He even had openings in his skull exposing his brain. A more gruesome experience 
in a more gorgeous setting would be hard to imagine. Reported Wynne in the April 11, 1932 edition of Time magazine. Young in years and mentally alert, he could hardly speak. His head was swathed in bandages. He had undergone two successive operations in which his whole upper jaw, except two front teeth, and most of his lower jaw had been removed. All the remaining bone tissue of his body was slowly disintegrating, and holes were actually forming in his skull. Ooh, it's never good when you have skull holes. Well, I mean, people that are huge proponents of tripanning would disagree with you and are all about Drilling holes uh, in their skulls. Drilling the holes in the skull. We should have yeah. we should have put that in for quack medicine. Maybe we, we could have always do quack medicine too. There's so many good quack medicines out there. <laughs> Maybe we'll fit it in the uh, quack medicine after hours. Oh yeah, good shout out for the after hours. It was game over for Briars, and he passed on March 31st, 1932. His bones were so radioactive, he had to be buried in a lead-lined coffin. His death heightened awareness of the danger of radioactive cures after it was featured in Time magazine, and the Federal Trade Commission ended up ordering Bailey's business to cease and desist from various representations theretofore made by them as to the therapeutic value of Radiothor, and from representing that the product Radiothor is harmless. Bailey either didn't get the memo or really believed in his product as he later founded the Radium Institute in New York and marketed a radioactive belt clip, a radioactive paperweight, and a mechanism which was purported to make water radioactive. Luckily, the time of radioactive water, belt clips, and paperweights have passed. These days, we are at the cutting edge of medicine and surely not doing any practices that the future will look back at skeptically in 50 years, right? Right? Yeah, most guaranteed, definitely, 
Anyways, I'll talk to you later. Bye. Hey, you've reached Chris. I'm not around right now, but you know what to do and when to do it. Oh, hey, I got your message. I think that homeopathy would be a great topic to do some research on. No joke. I told you how my mother is super into that stuff. It's sugar pills. Come on. It's sugar pills and it doesn't work. But when I was a kid, she swore by that stuff. She had a giant chest full of all these bottles. Just all the pills look the same. They all look the same. Because there's nothing in these pills. I'm telling you, they don't work. But she would combine them and the different labels. She would make little uh, piles of sugar pills. And when I was a kid, I loved that she treated me with these sugar pills. Because we were forbidden sugar. And it was the only way I could possibly get any sugar. So I encouraged all of her homeopathic treatments because I would get that sweet sugar hit. You should totally cover it. That's a great topic. I don't know if we should include your prayer line. Someone might take offense to that. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Hey, I got your message. That's pretty funny about the pills. I could imagine you as a young girl being denied the sugar and then pretending to be sick all the time just so your mom would give you some sugar pills. Anyways, I've uh, been doing research on this stuff, and it is even weirder than I thought. There's some really crazy stuff here, and I think it's going to be perfect. Some of it even has to do with the, the four humors, and I think you mentioned you were going to be talking about the four humors, the blood and the biles and everything. I will take the praying line out. I don't want to offend anybody, I know. So we're going to leave that out of the podcast. Anyways, I'll uh, give you a call when I got my research done. I'll run it past you before we record. All right, I'll talk to you later. Oh, yeah, interesting. Okay, I'm doing something about four humors myself. I think it's coming out pretty good. I can't wait to share it with you. Uh, looking forward to hearing what you're bringing to the table. I hope the research is going well. Talk soon. Hey, I'm glad I finally got a hold of you. I just wanted to run this stuff by you if you got a quick second. Okay, yeah. Lay it on me. What'd you find? Okay, so it all started in 1796 with this guy, Samuel Hanneman, who was a doctor and... He gave up being a doctor because the only way they had to treat people back then was they were still doing the four humor stuff, right? Okay. And he thought that it was awful to do this bloodletting and that they were doing more harm than good, which he was right about and pretty much the only thing he was right about. So he gave up being a doctor and started transcribing medical textbooks and in one of these medical textbooks, he found this mention by this physician named William Cullen, who was really well known at the time. And Cullen had this theory about cinchona bark because it was used for treating malaria. And this guy Cullen thought that it treated malaria because of its astringency. Hanneman was reading about this and he said, no, I don't think so, because there's other astringent things that don't cure malaria. So what he decided to do 
was go and eat a bunch of this bark. And then? So what happened was it gave him a fever and all the symptoms that were similar to malaria. So he made this assumption in his mind that if the substance gave you the same symptoms as the illness, then if you take the substance, it'll also cure you from the illness. What? Based on that, he developed this belief, and this is what all of homeopathic medicine is based on, is this idea that like cures like, which he called similia symbilis curanter. It was later discovered that this cinchona bark had high levels of quinine in it, and that's actually what helped cure the malaria because quinine kills the parasite that is causing the malaria in the person. So it had nothing to do with that the bark gave him the same symptoms. Huh. Based on this idea that he had, he started going out and randomly ingesting all these other substances to see what they would do to him. So just random roots and different plants. And he even got his family to do it with him, and he observed them and had them keep these diaries as to what their symptoms were when they ingested these different things. He called this practice proving, and he went ahead and made a list of all the different things that had the same effect as common illnesses so he could start making his remedies. Go on. The way he made his remedies was that he would take the substance and then dilute it in alcohol or distilled water. And then he would vigorously, vigorously shake it in a process he called succussion. And this whole process of making remedies was called dynamization or potentization. Hanman believed that the process of succussion activated this vital energy of the diluted substance and that successive dilutions increased the potency of the preparation. So the, the more dilute it was, the more potent it was going to be. What? He created this C scale, which stands for centesimal, because he diluted the substance by a factor of 100 at each stage. So we'd start with the original substance, one part of the original substance to 10 parts of whatever he was diluting it in, and then he would take one drop of that and mix it with 99 drops of water or alcohol, and then he would keep doing that, take one drop of this new solution, and then add it to 99 of other plain water alcohol, and he would do this numerous times. And his favorite one was to do it up to 30 times. So when you see that on the bottle of homeopathic medicine, the 30C means that it's been diluted by a factor of 130 times. So essentially, there's nothing left in it. I'm not sold. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the least convincing medicine I've ever heard. At the time, they thought they could do this because the molecule had been discovered as the smallest unit of a particular substance, like how water is just two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. Because of this, people assumed that you could just dilute any mixture indefinitely. They didn't know that you reached a limit. We have since discovered that you can't infinitely dilute these things thanks to Avogadro's constant. And it's been mathematically shown that the greatest dilution that is reasonably likely to contain one molecule of the original substance is a dilution of 12C, so diluted by a factor of 112 times. 
But even then, there's only a 60% probability of containing one molecule, one molecule of the original material in this solution. At Hanneman's recommended dilution of 30C, this would mean that you would have to give 2 billion doses per second to 6 billion people for 4 billion years to deliver a single molecule of the original material to any one patient. So it's a magic potion. Homeopaths defend this process by saying that water retains some essential property of the original material because the preparation has been shaken and beaten. So essentially, if, as long as you beat the thing, then it will maintain its original property. Right. Definitely. It's, that's how the magic potion happens, is if you violently shake it. Hanneman believed that the dynamitization or shaking of the solution caused that spirit-like healing force to be released from within the substance. So even though the homeopathic preparations are often extremely diluted, they still maintain that a healing force is retained in the preparations because this spirit of the water. Modern advocates of homeopathy even have proposed this concept of water memory. According to water memory, water remembers the substances mixed in it and transmits the effects of those substances when you consume them. What? However the magical spirit of the substance comes to be in the remedies doesn't really matter because one of the main principles of homeopathy is that the less of the substance you take, the more powerful or healing it is. So the mathematic improbability of there being any of the original substance left in their concoctions must make them extremely powerful healing agents. Yes, that's some solid logic right there. But homeopathic remedies aren't limited to tangible things. Okay, get this. So you can have them made out of plants and animals, right? But, oh no, there are what's called imponderables. These are substances like sun or moonlight or x-rays. Are you serious? I even found this homeopathic website where you can buy a laser beam. And they say this remedy was made by exposing a clear test tube of 90% ethanol to a pulsed beam of an Airbium laser. You can also buy Luna, which is sugar of milk that is exposed on a glass plate to the moon's ray for four hours and stirred with a glass rod. And I thought you might like this one because it's your favorite color. You can get a tincture made from the color purple and also one made from vaginal ultrasounds. How do you extract tincture from the color purple? It didn't state how these were collected or how you can make a tincture out of purple, but you can get it. And, of course, they have the ever-popular Stonehenge, which is made from the captured emanation of the energy there. The other thing I found that's crazy is that there are some circles in homeopathy that say simply writing the prescription down on a piece of paper and placing a glass of water over it or merely whispering the remedy into lactose is effective enough. So all you have to do is say the name, the magical name, and you get the effects? So you basically say, you, are, you will cure cancer 
to some lactose and that's going to be effective enough, but you got to give the correct number of dilutions. So you're like, this is the substance diluted this many times. What? This method is so wacky that it has even created a divide in the traditional homeopathic community because the traditional homeopaths say that this is completely unscientific and verging upon magic and superstition. No. <laughs> yeah. In my research, I couldn't find any valid scientific studies on homeopathic remedies. They basically don't have any effect beyond placebo. So this made me wonder why homeopathy has lasted for over 200 years. It's still strong as ever, and there's numerous people claiming to have benefited from it, right? So what I did find is that in Hanneman's time, his approach got rid of the bloodletting and the toxic concoctions made from mercury, so the patients actually got better on their own. Their immune systems weren't being taxed by being drained of blood or being burnt by hot pokers or made to drink toxic chemicals, so their immune systems healed them. Okay, that makes sense, actually. So he came along and gave them remedies that had no side effects because there was literally nothing in them except for water or alcohol or sugar, and they got better. The other reason that it's become popular is because of the methodology used by homeopathic practitioners. They spend at least an hour discussing every possible thing in the person's life with them to try and determine what's wrong with them. And this is completely different than Western medicine where usually you go in and the doctor sees you for a couple of minutes, asks you some questions and says, okay, we're going to run a bunch of tests and you never really talk to them again or they're just very curt with you. At least that's been my experience with most of my doctors. Oh, so it's a, a bit of a therapy session as well. There's also evidence that the placebo effect can be transferred and that if it's given to you by somebody you see as an an authority, then it might even have a greater possibility of you receiving the placebo effect. Also, there's always confirmation bias. So even if the thing that you take doesn't do anything at all and you still get better because your body is amazing at healing itself, then you attribute it to the medication that you just took. Also, a lot of homeopathic doctors are completely against Western medicine, and when they start working with a patient, they tell the patient, stop taking all this prescription medication, and oftentimes the prescription medication will have side effects, and the patient will stop taking it, and they'll stop experiencing those side effects. So even though they're not necessarily being cured, they're not getting all the negative side effects they were feeling before, and they credit homeopathy with this feeling of improvement. Interesting. So I know a lot of people are going to say, all right, what's wrong with homeopathy if it's helping people feel better? The main problem with it is like the problem with all the other quack medicine that we were talking about earlier. Most homeopaths have a negative view of traditional medicine. And because of this, they might cause people to delay seeking proven care and treatments. They also villainize pharmaceutical companies. Now, I'm not going to defend pharmaceutical companies because I have my own issues with them and I have an issue with a lot of the ways medicine is practiced, especially in the U.S., but we can talk about that in a different podcast. But what people don't realize is that 
homeopathy is huge business. Like we're talking billions of dollars. And one of the figures I found was that in 2018, it was estimated to have sold $5.6 billion of products alone. That's just products, not like consultation services or anything else. That's just product. And it's even growing at about 4% a year. So can you imagine these profits that these companies are making, the margins that they're making, basically selling just sugar, water, and alcohol to people? It's insane. So essentially what I want to try and get the idea across is that homeopathy is basically only slightly better than all the other shyster traveling medicine men of the old west and the, you know all the other sham products that are out there because they're not going to have opium in there or they're not going to have mercury or lead unless it's diluted so much that it's actually literally nothing there and that's uh, that's essentially what i wanted to get across so i'm trying to figure out how to present all this information in the best way okay that's good yeah I like that. So how are you going to put it all together? Like, are you going to do like a skit or a bit with it? Like some of the stories you've done, or is it just going to be just straight reporting? Yeah, I don't know. Like I said, I'm still kind of working on that. I'm going to mull it over my head a little bit, and then I'll figure out where I want to go with it and what direction. I don't know. But I'll let you know what I come up with. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing what you get. All right. Talk soon. Bye. Thanks, everybody, for joining us once again for another episode of the Dirty Talk podcast. It was a pleasure having you along with us on this crazy wild ride as we look at some of the insane things people have done to cure themselves. If you're desperate, you're going to try anything. Yeah, you, you pretty much will. And that's what happens over... And over again, in bad situations, in desperate times, somebody's going to come along, wave something in your face, and be like, this is guaranteed to work. What do we have to lose? Before we go, I do want to once again put out the podcast challenge, which we put out every time. And what is that challenge? Rate, recommend, and review. That's right. It is the three R's. So if you like the podcast, you appreciate what we're doing, tell your friends about it. The podcast can be found on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Spreaker, pretty much anywhere you can find a podcast. We're even on YouTube. I'll be throwing up some images on the Dirty Talk podcast Instagram, some of the weird quack medicines i came upon while doing research for this podcast check out our instagram we are the dirty talk podcast on instagram and finally we want to thank our honorary producers who are rolf hansen and his wives yes thank you very much rolf we greatly appreciate your support and if you want to become an honorary producer, you can find out the details by going to patreon.com backslash dirty talk podcast, and you'll find all the information you could ever need right there. Hint, you give us money. <laughs> this is a capitalist endeavor, my friends. We can't sell sugar water and 
make a profit off of selling nothing. I know your mom liked to wave crystals over things and then try and sell them as tinctures and cure-alls, right? She would take a bottle of sealed purified water and then put a bottle of sealed essential oil next to it. And then because of the magical properties of water and the magical properties of essential oil, it would be transmuted from the unopened bottle of oil that was side by side to the unopened bottle of water. Then you could drink the water and be cured of your gout and your headaches and your insomnia. And she was utterly convinced that this was this great product line. She herself could not come up with labels. So she took some of those hi, my name is labels, labeled what her magic bottles of water were going to do, and took it to Whole Foods, convinced they were going to carry her product line, and she would be set for life. And she came back to me, saddened and in shock, and informing me that Whole Foods did not want to pick up her product line of magical Mm. water. See, the only difference between her and the people hawking their homeopathic medicine Better is that labels. she's got enough. Well, better labels, they just got enough people to believe in it. <laughs> it's got more people to believe in it. But I can empirically say that her water that was infused with the essence of essential oils sitting next to it is just as effective as all those expensive homeopathic medicines you can find in the store. And you know what? You can just make your own at home. <laughs> or, or if you want some, I'll sell some to you. Give me your address. Send me some money in the mail. I'll ship you all sorts of weird crap that I guarantee will make you feel better if you believe in it hard enough. That being said, thanks again for joining us once again. And we look forward to talking to you next time. Over and out, my friends. Jaunty salute. Firing off. Bye. Bye.